Well, when it comes to prayer, there is likely not a one of us in this room who's where we'd like to be. I have no doubt that some of you in this room, I know some of you in this room are a prayer warrior per se, if we were to use that phrase that may seem cheesy but true. You go to the Father often. You praise him for who he is. You unburden yourself by confessing your sins and your struggles. You thank him for your for his forgiveness in Christ. You lay before him your petitions. You pray for your non-Christian friends to come to Christ. You pray for your family. You pray for our missionaries. You pray for your home group. And when people ask you to pray for something, you do it. Others of you struggle. You struggle to make time for this holy privilege. You struggle to focus when you do it. You don't feel effective. Prayer to you feels a bit like calling tech support where there's this other person on the end from another country and you're like, why am I even doing this? Maybe you write down prayer requests at home group but then you forget to pray. It's not that you don't care for those in your home group. It's not that you don't care for your brothers and sisters here and as we just had these prayer requests. It's, it's just that for whatever reason you, 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 you don't follow through and then you see the person and you kind of just go the other way because you don't want to tell them you didn't pray, right? Um, none of us are where we'd like to be. Whether you're a prayer warrior per se, whether you struggle per se, none of us are where we'd like to be. Those who struggle... Know that there's goodness here. You see it in the scriptures. It's it's importance. It's value. You want that. And those who pray well. Well you know that you want to pray better still. (laughs) Beauty of prayer is not like candy. Right? You tell your kids don't eat too much candy. That's not good for you. Well that's not prayer. Prayer is not candy. Prayer is like meat. You cannot... (laughs) get enough the more the better so to all of us Jesus has a word this morning not a word to break the back of those who are already bent low but a word to lift up and strengthen and encourage and a word to all of us to the end that we might pray and keep praying in 2022 so would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 18 Luke 18, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversaries. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? One thing I appreciate about this parable is that Jesus just puts the cookies on the low shelf where all of us can get to them right away. Not all of parables that Jesus spoke were easy to understand. Sometimes, like in Matthew 13, after the parable of the weeds, the disciples came to him and they said, Teacher, would you just teach us what is meant by this parable? But with this one, the point of the whole parable is stated just clear as day right up front and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What's the point of this parable? It's that we might pray and not lose heart. This parable is about persevering prayer and that's going to be important to keep in mind as we go through so that we interpret this thing rightly. You could put the emphasis on the wrong syllable with some of these details if you don't keep in mind what the point is. The point is for us to persevere in prayer. From a context standpoint, this comes right on the heels of Jesus teaching about the end of all things when he comes back and brings his kingdom and Verse 8 talks about the end of all things too. It says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So this parable has this eschatological orientation. Eschatology is a big word that just means end times or last things. And the idea here is that while we're waiting for Jesus to come back, God's people are a praying people. And that kind of ups the ante on prayer. How long are we supposed to persevere in prayer? If this is about persevering in prayer, which it is. How long are we supposed to persevere? A month? Six months? A year? Five years? Ten years? Thirty years? Fifty years? Yes, we persevere in prayer until the end. Either when we go to be with the Lord or when the Lord brings us back to himself. So, to spur us on and encourage us, we've got this parable. All right, well, we know the point of the parable. Let's look at the parable itself in verses 2 through 8. First of all, I just want you to look at the character of this judge. Verse 2 says, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected God man. That means this guy, simply put, is a piece of work. Uh, Verse 6 confirms it. Hear what the unjust judge says. This guy does not fear God, so he doesn't feel any obligation to conduct himself according to God's law. Furthermore, he didn't even respect man, so he didn't even care about his reputation. And this is a horrific combo. It's one thing for somebody who doesn't fear God to be in a position of power. That certainly exists today in business and economics and politics. Yes, yes. It's another thing if somebody in a position of power doesn't give a rip about what anybody else thinks about them. Most people want the public at large to at least think they're not scoundrels, right? But this guy 
This guy doesn't even give a rip what anybody thinks about him. That's who we've got here. He's unjust, he's got power, and he doesn't even care what other people think. That's a bad combo. (laughs) Now, look at the character of the petitioner. Verse 3 says, There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. So first of all, this was a woman... And women in the ancient world weren't in a position of power, just societally speaking. And more than that, this woman was a widow, and what that means was that she was vulnerable. Over and over in the Old Testament, God uses widows and orphans as example of those who are not in positions of strength, not in positions of influence, and therefore could be taken advantage of. But this widow was also persevering. She was persistent. The text says she kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So she's like coming into the courtroom all the time. Hey, Mr. Unrighteous Judge, me again, little old widow, I've been wronged and I'm calling on you as the judge to make it right. Please give me justice. Please vindicate my cause. Please act on my behalf in accord with what is right. Next day, same thing. Hey, Mr. Unrighteous Judge, me again. I've been wronged. I'm calling on you. So you get the point, right? Did you ever see the movie where, oh, what is it? I'm going to forget. Finding Nemo, the birds. Mine, 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 mine. You're just, I can't handle that, right? Well, that's this woman. That's what she's doing. Now, initially, the judge ignores her. Verse 4 says, for a while he refused. He's not concerned about some little old insignificant widow, and he blows her off. But ultimately, he acts. Not because he's concerned with justice, not because he cares for her, but because she was that bird who just kept saying, mine, 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 mine. She just, he just wants to shut her up. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me. I love it that the Bible talks that plainly. (laughs) Because this woman keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I honestly think this is kind of hilarious. The The widow just bothered him. He gives in because she wears him down. That phrase, beat me down, is literally to strike under the eye or to give a black eye to. (laughs) And the translators are right to translate it as they have. It's certainly figurative. It's not literal. But that doesn't lessen the intensity of what's going on. By her persistence, day in and day out, showing up at his court, pleading her case, Over and over and over. She just wears him down over time. She's like a boxer. Round after round that just keeps delivering blows to his opponent until his opponent finally just says, you know, I'm done. Or gets knocked out. You know. All right. Well, that's the comparison. That's what we have here in this woman. This judge eventually acts, though he cares not for God or man. I actually want to think for just a moment about this comparison between the unjust judge and God. Because clearly, that's the comparison that the biblical author is making. He's comparing God 
to this judge. Now here's where you could get tripped up if you're not careful and you start focusing on all the wrong things in the parable. If you think in any way that God is actually like this unjust judge, that he doesn't care about you, that he doesn't want to hear your prayers, that would be a colossal misunderstanding of the text. This is a lesser to greater argument. A lesser to greater argument is like this. If this thing is true, or if this thing is a given, how much more is this thing true? Or is this thing a given? And Luke does this in other places in the gospel. In Luke eleven eleven, he says, What father among you, this is Jesus' words, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Now, just in your head, ask yourself the question, would a father do that? Of course not. That's a given. The text goes on to say, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you see? If this thing is true, if you, being sinful men, know how to give good gifts to your kids, and you do, well, then how much more will this thing be true? How much more will the heavenly, good, and gracious Father give the Spirit to those who asked him? This is a study in contrast that makes the point even more powerful. God isn't an unjust judge who's uncaring concerning the injustices and trials of his children. He is not. So how much more will he act on behalf of his children who cry to him day and night? That's the comparison. The unjust judge is used in this parable precisely because he is so much different from God. If the unjust judge finally acts in response to the persistence of this widow, how much more will God act in response to our persevering prayer? Verse 6, and the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? God will act in response to the prayers of his people, his elect. Think about that. Of course God will answer the prayers of Christians because before the foundation of the earth, he chose to set his love upon you. That's what election is. Election is God setting his love upon you from before the foundation of the earth. And given that glorious reality, don't you think he's going to act on your behalf in response to your persistent prayer? Of course he is. And remember, this prayer has this eschatological focus, right? When it says he will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, that's talking about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. He's going to vindicate his elect. It's like in Revelation 6, 9, the scripture speaks about those who've been slain for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ and in that passage, these, these saints are crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, 
How long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer is, when Jesus comes back, that's when God's people who've suffered for the gospel and therefore sought God's grace in prayer to keep fighting the fight, that's when they're going to be vindicated. That's when they're going to be exalted with Christ and reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's when it's going to happen. And by the way, to be clear, this suffering for the gospel is the expectation for all Christians. Now, not every believer is going to die a martyr's death, but every believer is going to suffer for the gospel. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Everyone, everyone, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This life between Christ's first coming and his second coming is characterized by suffering for the gospel. Now let me just make that real for you because it doesn't feel very real oftentimes to us, but here's what it looks like at a minimum. It's relational tension in some sense resulting from you sharing the gospel. If you're sharing the gospel, that's going to result in some form of tension at some point Because the gospel is offensive. Almost every aspect of the gospel is offensive. God is creator. You know what that means? It means he has rights over you. You're not your own. That's kind of offensive. God is lawgiver. You know what that means? It means morality is not personal or a cultural construct, but it's eternal. That's kind of offensive. God is judge who punishes those who will not obey. You know what that means? It means hell is real. And it's the end of those who are outside of Christ. That's that's hard to swallow. Christ is the only way to escape from the wrath of God. You know what that is? That's narrow-minded. But all these things are true. And these things make us fish out of water. And that should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to prayer to ask God for strength and grace to, let's just think about this. It should ask God. It should lead us to, it it should drive us to prayer to ask God for strength and grace to not be ashamed of the gospel. To ask God for strength and grace to not be calloused and hard-hearted toward an increasingly hostile world. To ask God to help us to be faithful and happy followers of Jesus Christ. Following Jesus in the way of the cross, which is the way of suffering. He will vindicate us. He will grant us justice. And the text says, how cool is this? He is going to do that, how quickly? Speedily. Speedily. Now, from a human perspective, justice may seem like a long time coming, but it will come. And in the light of eternity, it will come quickly. This life is a vapor, James tells us. Justice is coming at the end of it, and in eternity, it will be seen as having come so quickly. (laughs) Now, that last phrase is kind of curious. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The answer is yes. The answer is yes, he he will find faith on the earth. But Jesus, 
Jesus poses it as a question because he's exhorting his disciples. He's exhorting his church. He's exhorting us to constant watchfulness in prayer. He's exhorting us to give ourselves to persevering prayer. When he returns, he will be looking for those who are doing what? Praying. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. I want to take a step back and I want to broaden this out and I want to reflect on six lessons that we learn about prayer, kind of just pulling the threads of the principles that are here in this text. So number one, and you could find these on the outline if you want to follow along. Number one, prayer is eschatological. Now remember, eschatology is the study of last things. So I just want to be clear. What do I mean when I say prayer is eschatological? I mean it's something that's done in view of the end. Jesus casts our eye to the end of all things in this parable, right? He casts our eye to his return and he promises that at his return, that's when the burdens we go to him with in prayer will all be relieved. That's when all things are going to be made right. That's when we're going to see how every prayer, every prayer was answered just right. And that's when we're going to see that this whole life, oh, it was so brief, it was so fleeting. And the end came so quickly. And friends, when you have this perspective, this eschatological perspective, it has an effect on the way you pray. Here's how it affects you. Suddenly, certain things are less important and certain things are more important. You know what's less important? What's less important is the relief of whatever thing you're praying for. So when I say relief, I'm going with the assumption that you and I, for the most part, we go to God with the burdens that we want relief from. So you have a problem. You have a possible problem. You go to God with that. So you have a doctor's appointment coming up. You have a marital conflict. You have financial burdens. You go to God and you ask for relief from those things in prayer. You know what I mean by this. Oh God, may the diagnosis not be this. Who doesn't pray for that? Oh God, make our marriage happy. Oh God, take away this financial strain. You get the idea. Having an eschatological perspective changes things such that what's less important, not unimportant, But what's less important is just relief and other things start to become more important. Like faithfulness. Oh God, may the diagnosis not be this or that becomes, oh God, regardless of what the doctor tells me, may I respond in faith. May I respond in trust. I know that you are good, whether I or my child suffers with this affliction or that affliction for the rest of my life or theirs. O God, I know that you do not promise me long life or tremendous health. O God, I have no reason to presume upon it. 
What I want most, God, is to respond with trust and faith, regardless of the news that I hear on Tuesday. Faithfulness becomes more central than relief. Do you see that? Obedience becomes more central than relief. Obedience becomes more central than relief. Oh God, make our marriage happy becomes, Oh God, help me to do all that is in my power to make our marriage happy. Oh God, help me to be humble and own my sin, even if my spouse does not. Oh God, help me to serve my spouse, even if my spouse is being selfish. Oh God, help me to love, even if my spouse is hard to love. Obedience to God's word becomes more central than relief. It's not that relief is unimportant, but what's more important is our obedience. This is what an eschatological perspective gives to us. And God's glory becomes more central than relief too. Oh God, take away this financial strain. Becomes, oh God, may I live in such a way during this time of financial strain that I am a living display to all. The joy is found in Christ and not in money. Oh God, I have all that I need. I have food. I have clothing. I have a roof over my head. Forgive me, God, for complaining. Forgive me, God, for longing over what I don't have that so-and-so does. Forgive me, God, and help me to be content with your provision. God's glory becomes more central than relief. And what else becomes more central is just this is just this overarching desire to treasure God more. Like that you would come to treasure God more. Oh God, in this hardship, whatever it is, fill in the blank for you. Teach me that the riches I have through the gospel make me a blessed and rich man or woman regardless of my circumstances. Oh God, it may be that this trial and hardship have been specifically sent forth by your hand to do just that. To show me that my joy and my treasure is lodged too much in the here and now. You are taking some pleasure from the here and now away from me, God, so that I might find my pleasure in you, O God. Help me to treasure you more. You get the idea of what I'm saying? It's a flavor. It's a flavor. It's an eschatological flavor that arcs us towards eternity and changes the priority and the emphasis in our prayers. And you know what it really does if I were to kind of even make it a bit more simple? It helps us to live in the here and now with an eternal perspective. That's what it really helps us do. It helps us to live in the here and now with an eternal perspective. But I want to back up even even as I say that and just tell you this is not easy. This is not easy. This is so dead blurned hard, okay? Which is why, next point, you need prayer. You need prayer. The book of James tells us something ludicrous. Just hear me. We're about to get into James. So, little teaser. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. Now, think about what James is saying here. He's a nut job. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's crazy. 
Count it all joy when you meet various kinds of trials. Count it all joy when your husband is shipped off for a year. Count it all joy when you have headaches every day. Count it all joy when it seems like the world has gone mad with fear over a virus that has over a 99% survival rate. That's one side of it. Count it all joy when you are immunocompromised, Tim, and you have to be more secluded than you'd ever like to be. That's another side of it. Count it all joy because these things are designed by God to make you more mature. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Now, I've just got a question for you. Have you ever noticed the next verse? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God to gives generously, who gives generously to all. Put that in context. We need God to give us the wisdom to interpret and to walk out our trials with an eternal perspective. Our bent is not to rejoice in trial. Our bent is not to see our situation in light of eternity. That's why we need to pray. Oh God, help me. Oh God, help me to see this how you see it. Help me in this, not simply to desire relief, but to desire faithfulness and obedience and your glory. Brothers and sisters, do you see it? We need prayer, according to the book of James, to help us live lives of wisdom that honor God. If we don't pray, we are not going to live well. Just write that down. If we don't pray, we're not going to live well. Quite simply, because God acts through our prayers. You have not, James says, because you ask not. The prayer of a righteous man has great power, James says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how many of us are spiritually off because we just don't pray. I wonder how many of you are lukewarm in your affection for Jesus because you simply don't pray. I wonder how many of you are being tossed about by temptation because you just don't pray. I wonder how many of you are unhappy and hard to be around because you simply don't pray. I wonder how many of you are convinced you're always going to be like this simply because you don't pray. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray. And not lose heart. God acts through our prayers, brothers and sisters. God is pleased to accomplish his will through our prayers. We must pray. And we must trust God when our prayers are unanswered. Or answered in a way that we don't like. So we've got to grapple with this. Not every prayer we pray is going to be answered in a way that we like. You have not, James says, because you ask not. Okay. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sometimes God says no to us, and of course he's going to say no to sinful things. Captain Obvious, got that, put a check mark by the box. But sometimes he also says no to things because that's what's best for us. 
Sometimes the things we're praying for, although they're fine and good, sometimes the things that we're praying for aren't what's best for us. Maybe the Lord doesn't want you to get the promotion because it would take you away from being able to disciple younger believers at church. Maybe the Lord doesn't want the feeling of temptation to go away so that you learn that you've got to say no, no matter if the feeling is there or not. Maybe the Lord doesn't want the relational tension to go away because you've got to learn to repent. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. Might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evil of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thine all in me. God is doing more in our prayers than we understand. He is changing us. He is changing us through our prayers. Uh, This is obvious at this point, but prayer isn't primarily a mechanism whereby we ask God for stuff and he gives us stuff. So it's not a vending machine that we put a dollar up to and then out comes the Coke. Prayer changes us. Prayer is like a tuning fork whereby God tunes our hearts to be more like his. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, which is a prayer that gives us big categories concerning how we should pray, the first three categories are Godward. They're about him. They're not even about us. We pray that his name would be magnified in our lives and in the world. We pray that his kingdom would come and we pray that his will would be done in our lives and in the world. Then we go on to pray for our needs. Then we go on to pray for his provision and power in our lives. Why do we pray like this? Because it has a transforming effect on us. If we're framing our prayers first towards God and his purposes and then towards ourselves, over time our hearts are going to experience transformation and our thinking and our feeling and our desiring are going to change and be more Godward than selfward. And finally, and I think this next one is the most encouraging for me, God stands ready to act on our behalf. 
Verse six, hear what the unjust or unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Church, I just want to tell you, God loves to be wearied out by your prayers. God loves to have you come to him again and again and God is always receptive to you and God always stands ready to act on your behalf. Just think about that for just a minute. He is never too busy. He never puts the phone on silence with a mental note to call you back when he's dealing with that other situation in the world. No. You have his ear. What's going on, son? What's going on, daughter? What's burdening your heart? What do you need to talk to me about? Talk to me, son. Talk to me, daughter. Let's talk. That's so sweet. That's so comforting. That's so amazing because this is the God of the universe. This is the God who holds the galaxy in the palm of his hand and he invites us to weary him out with our prayers. He never gets tired of hearing from us. And more than that, he stands ready to act. He is not like us, full of good intentions with terrible power and follow through. Very little follow through. That's not God. He has every resource at his disposal. He will make use of them when the time is right. Everything, everything here is working toward our ultimate good. How do we know it? Because of the gospel. Because he who did not spare his own son for us, how will he not with him give us all things? (laughs) so how are you doing this morning are you persisting in prayer are you praying at all are you praying but you don't know if your prayers are effective are they are they little more than Lord thank you for the food and thank you for this day and thank you for X, Y, Z in Jesus name Amen Let's make growth and persistent prayer one of our aims for 2022. Because God is just, because God loves to act on behalf of his people, let us pray. Let us pray steadily, patiently, perseveringly. Let us never doubt that it will do us good. And let us move forward in 2022 from wherever we are in prayer toward that end. And if you're here this morning as a non-Christian and you're thinking, well, that's a nice message that has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. Pray that God would show you the truth of the gospel. Pray that God would impress upon your hearts the loveliness of Jesus Christ. Pray that God would help you to move beyond a mere mental assent to the facts, but to a true faith in his name. That he is so lovely. He is worth you giving up all things for him. Pray. Pray.
pray and ask him to work that work. Don't let him go until he blesses you. And Christian, wherever you are, and let me just make a confession to you. Prayer is where your pastor, I struggle the most. I preach this sermon to myself. And it's been wonderful to allow you to hear. This is where I struggle the most. So wherever you are, start wherever you are and just move forward. Here's a good, really simple goal for those of us who struggle with, maybe like Eric was talking about, making a goal and then not sticking to it. So just let's just not make goals. Well, let me just give you a simple one. How about you just determine to pray every day? How about just that? I'm just going to pray at least once every day. Simple. Maybe not even a time commitment. Some of you are like, okay, I'm going to go 10 minutes. No, no, no. Just, just commit to doing it once every day. Maybe you start with the Bible. Maybe you open up a psalm and you just let the psalm instruct you in how to pray. And if you don't know how to do that, why don't you come to, to men's prayer? If you're women, I guess you can't do that. But ask another lady to help you. And they will. But come to men's prayer where we work through a prayer and we let the psalms direct us to God and you'll be instructed and you'll be encouraged. Determined to make use of our times together as a church to help you pray. Our times of prayer. Get together with a brother or sister and pray. Just pray. God will bless it. God will use it. God will grow you in ways that you might find shocking and hard to believe because Ephesians 3 does tell us that he's able to do far more than we are able to even ask or think. He is a gracious and generous God and we know he is because he gave his son for us. So he will give to us all things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you that even... For those of us who know that, boy, we're just not where we want it to be, it's not like you have a harsh word for us this morning, but an inviting word. A word that says, it's okay, son. It's okay, daughter. I love you through the gospel. Just keep coming to me. Lord, may we keep coming to you, individually and corporately. And would you transform us through it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.